I did see somebody in the elevator earlier, which was rare, but uh, no, it's basically me. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson and James Lalex. That's me. We're all back together. We're going to go to school with Mark Bauerlein and Andrew Gutman. Let's have ourselves a podcast. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was going to put him in uh, put, excuse me. We never get bored. Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast number 630. You can join oh, us man. on Ricochet. I, I know. I know. You can Gotta join us on Ricochet. That. Well, no, no, we don't stop that, Rob. We keep going. We want to <laughs> get to 666 and see exactly what happens then. <laughs> well, that's that's the end. Right. <laughs> if you join us at Ricochet.com, by the way, you will be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web, and you'll see exactly why we've gotten to 630, because there's a thriving group of people who love to listen to every word we say with rapt attention and adoration afterwards <clears throat> actually probably no but that's the fun of it we get to disagree from time to time hey everybody's back it's peter it's rob it's me james lilix minneapolis peter in california rob i assume in gotham and yes. uh, so here we all are and uh yay how's everybody doing uh all well on this end uh rob was gone for a while and traveled all over the world and i'd like him to compress into two sentences mm-hmm what he learned, what we should know about what he, just compress it all into two sentences. Well, I don't know about two sentences, but I'll compress it into two little phrases. Um, uh, poor places in the world got measurably, miserably poorer thanks to COVID restrictions, thanks to COVID hysteria among the rich countries. Um, Jerusalem is uh, uh, a staggering place. And I mean, you know, almost in a physical way, like you sort of stagger. You like, you can't yes. believe that it's, uh, that it's that first of all, that it's still there. And you just can't believe the rich, nasty irony of the fact that the headquarters of the three revealed religions, which share so much, I mean, so much text mm-hmm. that they agree on, um, have spent 2000 years trying to kick each other out um, and it ain't over and it no. And I feel like it's going to be a very bad March and April. Um, and, uh, that's it. And also that, that, uh, that, that, uh, Cairo is a fantastic city. Cairo is a great city. Oh, really? That I would actually go back to Cairo in a heartbeat. So if I may follow, follow up to the extent of one question, James, and then I mm-hmm. toss it all right back to you. Rob's, form of Christianity is, uh, to my mind, a little amorphous, and yet it's always there. Oh, yeah. There uh, you go. Christmas and Easter, he tells us about these vast treks he makes across the island of Manhattan to participate in the church. What, in your mind, in your heart, awe, nothing, what was it like to go to the church, of to the holy places? And in particular, I, I'm asking this yeah. because you wrote about it, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, here, here's what's the most amazing thing is that I feel like people, uh, you know, I don't, I don't people religious, even not religious, but I'm certainly Catholics, I suppose. I, I, as you know, I do not, uh, count myself among those, that group. Um, you know, you go to the, the, you go to the important places in your religion or the important places in Christianity and you look at beautiful art and you look at the you know the Sistine Chapel, the 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 famous porch in St. Peter's. You look at these beautiful statues and these incredible paintings. And you know you walk through the Met, and it's what is it? Eighty percent of it is pictures of Jesus, and some at some stage in his life, right? And then you go to Jerusalem, and you there is no real art there. Mm-hmm. The Church of the Resurrection, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, what do you want to call it? Is just kind of a dump. Um, nobody really, it doesn't, you're not, you don't, you don't, people are not standing in line to see a painting or a sculpture or to look at, um, a fresco. Um, they're standing in line to touch a rock. They're standing in line to feel something. The place itself 
if you're used to sort of Western style, uh, <laughs> you know, order, it's got like, you know, like all these, these Orthodox, various Orthodox churches kind of have control over it. And they all sort of split the, the Christians have such a hard had have had historically. I mean, I mean, for millennia, such a hard time administering their, their own holiest site that, that the Ottoman Sultan finally had to give the control of the site over to two Muslim families that have had it for yes. about a thousand years. And they control, one c- controls the key and the other controls the door. Um, because you couldn't trust the Christians to sort of get along. There's a ladder as you walk into it. There's a and ladder on the, the top. And that, that continues to this day. To this day, yeah. You, you know, we, I saw them. Like, I saw them walk The, the ceremony, right. Yeah. Um, it's not even a ceremony. It's just a kind of a guy, and the, and the family kind of just assigns somebody. They, it's just they're responsible for it, but they you know, they pay some kid to do it, um, and they have for a thousand years. Um, you go into the church, and it's got like you know this like a lousy, crappy looking lights, and like those Dairy Queen curlicue kind of fluorescent things, and, and in front of the holy tomb you know and like it's kind of like it needs a big cleaning up and just and there's a there were power strips plugged into the wall and like a, and yet um it just goes to show you you know that it isn't really about the art or the painting of the sculpture or the architecture it's really just about the place and so you go uh and you stand in line a little bit and then um and every religion has this experience i mean the, you know the judaism uh islam and christianity share this they you go to the pl- the place that is the most holy, whether it's the Western Wall or the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, or the Dome of the Rock uh, or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You go and you stand in line and you touch a rock and you see what isn't there. It's an empty tomb. That's the story of Christianity is that you open the tombs rolled away and it's not, no one's there. The Dome of the Rock is the rock on which Muhammad was taken to heaven. He's not there. The Western Wall is the wall upon which, next to which, or on top of which, depending on which side of this you believe, was the, the site of the Second Temple. It is not there. So you go and you're, you go all the way to Jerusalem to look at things and to experience things that are not there anymore. There's only one thing that's there, and that's you. And that, to me, was, I thought, the most moving thing, is that I'm not there to look at anything or to see anything. I'm just there to be there and to be, to be me. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> what's amazing is that but <laughs> that um you know more and more and more people are going to die because of that i mean it's, <laughs> it just isn't it just more and more people and it's not going to be peaceful it's not on its way to being peaceful um it's on its way to being a little bit more um i mean i think i'm I, i'm not i'm pessimistic about the spring so um you're talking about the new israeli government yeah, the news really government and the and the reaction to it i mean everybody's a react right. everybody likes to say things and then they wonder why the other people are overreacting to what they're saying so um you said it's going to be a bad I, spring why yeah well i think what's going to happen is you have a, a new israeli government that's kind of wobbly politically it's having trouble getting its uh, judicial reforms passed the one thing it can do is act tough on um west bank and then rely upon the palestinians in gaza the hamas to launch missiles um Then you have Hamas, which is going to take any provocation it can. I mean, people, Palestinians were you know, complaining about r- some radical uh, Jewish clerics demanding the build- rebuilding of the Third Temple, which <laughs> would it's sort of like saying, uh, you know, I want to build a house right where you live. Mm-hmm. I mean, it means we got to tear down where you live, which is the third holiest site in Islam. So none of it, I mean, all of this is saber riding. None of this is going to happen, I don't think, but it's going to cause a lot of uh, there'll be a lot of rioting and a lot of rocks throwing and a lot of people killed um, before they exhaust themselves for the next few years. I think I, I wish I, my, I have a, my solution to the problem. Ah, good. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, I have a solution. My solution is more Christians. There are fewer and fewer Christians, fewer and fewer Palestinian Christians than ever before. And whereas right. it, 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 there, it, there is really no other place in, in Christendom that is more holy than Jerusalem or more holy than the West Bank in general, capital W, capital B. And, um, and all Christians are leaving. I would say Christians should move. The more, the more Christians there, the better. Maybe kind of ease the tensions a little bit. And the secularists would say that actually what the area needs to be 
what it really needs is to be stripped and drained completely of these religion of these antiquated sky god things. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know exactly. What would they? What would they have to fight about if it wasn't religion? Well, I think that they would probably come up with something. Human beings, what being what they are. Um, but the the no art thing is interesting to me. I mean, I I oh. th- that's kind of how I see it too, as though all of the splendors were offshore to the other cities, to Rome, to uh, you know, we just had a exhibition here in Minneapolis um, from the Uffizi. And I know Peter, of course, has been at the Uffizi himself on a private tour, right? You were oh, did, did, uh, two or three times. Right. Two or three right. private tours, that is, yes. Right. Where you go with such rich guys, they actually allow you to touch the paintings and the rest of it, all the things the rest of us can't do. Um, and the, 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 the astonishing amount of religious iconography that was brought over. Um, what's interesting to the modern eye is that you look at all of these things that they brought from the Uffizi, all these manifestations of religion in which I grew up, and every one of them has a story which has become over time inscrutable, a reference, a gesture, an object, a piece of symbolism, this whole vast visual language, mm-hmm. which I, I, I get some of it because I've studied it a lot, but there's so much that's mm-hmm. obscure and waits to be said. To go to a place that is denuded completely, and as Rob said, just allows you to communicate with the absence or the presence implied by the absence is a fascinating experience i'd still rather go to the museum but that's just me Mm -hmm. so that's more than two sentences rob but i've learned an awful lot sorry and how long you were there (laughs) you you were there for uh you know 36 hours right yeah 30 i talked to two cab drivers that's how you that's how you do it that's what i was gonna do uh, i I was there for about two weeks uh two weeks and then and um i mean uh and two weeks in a long time in jerusalem I, but i would go back because i i would actually like to spend a month there and just kind of be oh, there because right, there's yes. plenty tons to see and um there's you know just lots going on and you you, you know stupid it's question, great i mean stupid, it, stupid yeah, question which may be irrelevant to a lot of people but i think isn't um how are newspapers there? Do they have a vibrant culture where there's lots of broadsheets and people hawking them in the corners and people snapping them open in the cafes as they go? Or is, is Israel a high-tech well, society move beyond that and just simply stares at their pads like everybody else? Israel definitely is sort of super high-tech and very advanced technologically. Um, uh, uh, there's sort of two big... Um, uh, two big papers in Israel. And one is... Um, uh, sort of the more of the New York Times called Haretz, and it mm-hmm. actually comes with the New York Times. You buy a New York Times, um, and that, that so they you do read it, but I, to get it. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I don't know. I found it. I found it very interesting, actually. Um, but they have enormous amount of sort of online media. I was in. It was in. Uh, I went down to Jordan, so to cross into Jordan, I went to uh, Ilat, which is a tiny little. Was a was a horrible. You know, kind of a dumpy little beach town it was a resort town in israel on the on the red sea and um i went into the hotel little gift shop and asked for a see if they had a newspaper there because because you know hotel gift shops often sell newspapers right mm-hmm. and you know i said i don't speak any i don't speak any hebrew but the person like what but a newspaper you have a newspaper and then the guy looked at me like uh and then he said in english no, we don't. We don't have that. No, we don't have that. Like it was an outrageous thing for me to ask. No, we don't have that. We don't have that. Like shaking his head. And then another guy, I guess the boss, who was another part of the shop, was like called out to him in, in Hebrew. I think. Um, hey, what did he ask for? And then the guy says in Hebrew back, you know, mm-hmm. shrugging like, "What an idiot! This guy, yeah. a newspaper. Can you believe it?" And then the other guy looked at me and then said in English, "No, we don't have that. Go online." He said, mad that I hadn't gone online, which I thought was a great um, introduction to the, re- to the region, I should say, to the temperament of the region. I, I, I'm, I'm going to sum up. Um, I agree with everything you said about what it's like to be agree, not as if you're putting it to my judgment. But yes, I agree. Everybody you experienced that some feels, The only thing you didn't mention, but I'm, only because I asked you to keep it to two sentences, was the sound in the Holy Sepulchre. You go, you go to St. Yeah. Peter's, rather hush, the tour guide is trying to hold his voice up, mm-hmm. and then St. Peter, hey, over here! Blah, 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 uh, sounds of different masses, bells yeah, yeah. being clanged, it's just, it's loud. Uh, a priest I met in Jerusalem said, you go to Rome to experience Christ in his divinity, and you come to Jerusalem to experience him in his humanity. Mm-hmm. That's, hmm. that struck me as pretty good. Struck me as pretty good. All right. Although, I mean, I don't know. You, you know, the empty tomb is in Jerusalem. That's about as divine as you get. 
Well, the thing about Rome is, aside from the fact that there's an incredible church every four yards, inside of which contains a profusion of art and Baroque, uh, marvelous, you know, it's extraordinary, and you never tire of it. But then you go to St. Peter's, which is built on such a gigantic scale that as a human being, you feel very, very small. You feel among giants. You feel as this is a race of giants that you can aspire to, that you can can eventually ascend to. Um, But I never come away, I always come away from Rome, um, or any one of these experiences, frankly, even though you've just connected with the oldest parts of your civilization, you still feel, you feel invigorated by it. You feel absolutely up to date, up to the, I walk with a spring in my step out of every museum because I feel that I've been filled up by what my culture can give me. But does that mean I'm going to live longer because I've been to museums? No, it doesn't. But let me ask you this. Is it possible to extend your lifespan and feel younger at the same time? That sort of youth that you feel when you learn something or done something or gain? Uh, well, according to a Harvard scientist, Nobel Prize winning breakthrough. Absolutely it is possible. Now, you ask, how? Well, by lengthening your telomeres. Yes, your telomeres. They protect your DNA and they play a critical role in the aging process. But many of us struggle with shortening telomeres thanks to stress and unhealthy food and obesity and more. That's why we recommend Youth Switch. Youth Switch is an all-natural, doctor-approved, and manufactured right here in America. It contains a potent blend of adaptogens that promote healthier, healthy, healthier telomeres and longer lifespans. It boosts your energy, and it can support regeneration of healthy organ systems. Now, Youth Switch, you can try this for yourself, risk-free, today. How? Well, do this. And you, I should note, you'll receive a free bottle of Ageless Brain as a bonus. Don't you want an Ageless Brain? I do. A great product to help you improve your focus and your memory and your mood. You'll also receive four bonus ebooks to boost every aspect of your health and longevity. Go to youthswitchmd.com slash ricochet to claim your supply of Youth Switch and all five bonus gifts, the free bottle of Ageless Brain and the four bonus ebooks. That's youthswitchmd.com slash ricochet to order a Youth Switch today. Check it out. And we thank Youth Switch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Mark Bauerlein. He taught for nearly three decades as an English professor emeritus at Emory University. He's a senior editor of First Things and the author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, a follow-up to his 2008 book. Earlier this year, he was among the six of Governor DeSantis' appointees to the new College Board of Trustees, which means that you are one of the minions of the Genghis Khan, as uh, Vanity Fair is calling him now. Apparently, there was this this group of brave little freethinkers who were doing their best to, t- to, t- to tend the guttering flame of western civilization and along came DeSantis and the rest of it and just imposed this 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 mad massive set of rules on these brave little souls this is the new college in florida <clears throat> that's what we're being told anyway can you tell us what's going on at new college what was it and what do we hope to see it become in the future well i i think that the key word in your description just now is little uh, and really, the first question I have to ask is this gem, this liberal arts gem that is the object of a set of conservative vandals uh, descending upon it to destroy it. It really has to answer one basic question that I would say, and that is, why is it that in a state with 22 million people, the state's exploding, and you've got a public college price tag, which is wonderful at 10 grand or so, you've got an amazing faculty student ratio why is it that this school can't break more than 700 students? It's not even as big as a high school huh. in Florida. If it's so great, why can't we build up the application pool? Why don't more students want to go there? I mean, 700 students, this seems to be quite a public expenditure on a fairly low rate of return. And what we want to do is see if we can build the college if we can see, are there some ideological barriers to a lot of students who might want to go there? We have 70% of the student body is female, 30% male. And admissions officers will tell you that when you break the 60% barrier on female students, boys don't want to go there, and then girls don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. So we've got a problem there. Do we need to look at that? Uh, Do we need to see if somehow there is the identity politics getting out of control on campus. I mean, a lot of the students claim this is a queer campus and it's gonna stay that way. Well, no identity should be applied to any campus 
as its campus identity. That that's going to push away a lot of students as well. So we're we're really in the phase now. We fired the president at our first board meeting. We fired the general counsel. We actually put under question the DEI programs. We want to get a a we want to get a report on what DEI programs do. I would like to see all DEI programs uh, terminated with extreme prejudice in <laughs> one, remove the DEI statements that are required from every faculty member who applies for a job. These are- oh, they've done that, have they? Wow. The, loyal- the loyalty oaths, yes. Exactly. So there are, you know, you know, it's going to be a slow process. Even small institutions take take a while. Well, really? Mark, can I just say, yeah. so it, the, the new college describes itself on the website as Florida's public honors college. So the first two words there are Florida's and public. And as f- far as I can tell from reading the news reports, the faculty were shocked that the governor, who is, after all, the leading public official in the state of Florida, took it upon himself to appoint members to the Board of Trustees. In other words, it reads to me like, and you're now a trustee, so you have to persuade and deal with these people. You may want to soften what I say, but this reads to me like yet another instance of academics taking it as granted that it's the job of taxpayers to fund their salaries and to permit them to do whatever they want to do with the institution and there is no accountability to those taxpayers within living memory on many of these campuses so what we have is a fine institution on all kinds of uh academic by all kinds of academic measures but it the self-absorption is more or less total is that fair is that what's gone on at new college over the years well as as you know Peter, from your experience at Stanford, the Hoover Institution, the faculty have been able to assert this prerogative all across the country for a long, long time. We're in charge. We're in control. We are only accountable to ourselves. This is about academic freedom. We are the ones who determine peer review, uh, what gets taught, what gets tested, what are the criteria of inclusion and exclusion. And they've really had it pretty well to the point where they've become quite spoiled. The idea that I work in a public institution, I get a check from the state, ultimately from the taxpayers. Well, so what? Right. And the other, the, the, the other, one other dynamic that I've noticed again and again is the faculty have progressively, again, I'm asking if this is the case that you're at the institution you're now helping to run. Faculty have progressively intimidated trustees. Trustees tend to be, not exclusively, but they tend to be at one institution after another business figures. And I myself have been astonished again and again at how academics are able to cow or how figures from business permit themselves to be cowed by academics. Your job is to raise money. You just don't know enough about the work we do to, to establish curricula or academic, leave that to us, all of it to us. You just pitch the money over the transom to us. Now, so one of the more striking things about that nefarious man, Ron DeSantis, is that among the trustees he's appointed to New College in Florida are two genuine academics. We're talking to one, Charles Kessler is another, what do they make of that at New College? You're not an, you're not about to be intimidated by people with doctorates. You know, when I go down for the next board meeting, I'm going to sit down with faculty who want to meet and we'll talk, we'll debate, we'll talk about DEI. I'll tell them exactly why I think it's wrong. And I can borrow, as you said, upon my 30 years of experience in teaching at a top level research university, I've read manuscripts for all, you know, 20 different presses and, and journals evaluating them for publication. I've been on hiring committees and tenure and promotion committees. I've been active in the scholarly associations. I've written or edited a dozen books. So uh, I I can't be thought of as an outsider coming in. I know the way things work within the campus. So I'm not a businessman who, let's say, I have a a local business in Sarasota, Florida, and I've got to be a little careful in running against the, the, the grain of, of things. I don't want some students showing up protesting outside. Right, right, so right. I'm just going to sort of go along rubber stamp and write a check. 
Uh, but this is, I've had to explain to a lot of journalists, trustees. Think about the trustee of a trust. You are there to monitor for malfeasance. You are there to make sure the mission is, is being observed. And that's what we're supposed to do in a university. I mean, the trustees are the ones who ultimately do things like approve a professor for tenure. I mean, we, we actually are part of the intellectual running of the institution. And that exactly, Peter, Peter that, that, that's what's been forgotten in a lot of places. Hey, can I? Uh, hey, uh, uh, thanks for joining us. It's Rob Long in New York. I, I've got a couple. I've got three questions. One is just to set the stage for a minute, because I, I, I may have this wrong. Seven hundred students in the college, um, and it was going broke. Is that? I mean, it was. I mean, there really isn't. I mean, to be you know, not no offense, but if I'm put on my green eye shade and I'm the CFO of the state of Florida. I'm closing that college. 700 students, not enough. I'd take that money and build a high school, right? <laughs> so it wasn't as if the choice is to continue this great liberal arts, you know, Hampshire College, we create our own curriculum, kind of free-thinking curriculum university, and keep that going, or the barbarians from the right wing come and turn it into, a, a, I don't know what, you know, University of Hamburg in 1932 or whatever. It was really turn the thing into a Cinnabon or keep it as a, going university is that i mean i know i'm an extreme way to put it but is that kind of right you, you know rob if this school were getting twenty thousand applications and yeah. two thousand students and it was really bursting at the seams two thousand enrolled you know we would have to say wait a minute this does sound like a success story it does sound like florida voters like this college but look, right you're, you're right the facilities need to be updated uh you need better food on, on campus, not so many vending machines. You know, right. a more vibrant place. And I mean, look, Sarasota. I, I was there last month. I took a video and I thought, if the admissions office sent recruiters to upstate New York high schools in in January and just did a film, just of, of weather. Yeah, yeah. right, right. On the no, bay. I get you. <laughs> I get you. All right. So my other question is this: I mean, you know, the the old joke is that academic disputes are so nasty because the stakes are so small. We're talking about a small school that no one had ever heard of. No one in Sarasota had ever heard. I mean, DeSantis made a joke the other day. He said, I know people who live in that neighborhood who've never heard of this college, right? So this feels like a very big experiment that we're about to have, where you have the forces of, you know, the whatever we're going to call the DEI forces on one side claiming that theirs is the way. And we have people who've been trying to reform that on the other side who now have this influence and control over a very small, very, I mean, you know, a small university college. And won't we know in a year or two, at a very low cost, um, which one works? I mean, if there's, if you, if we have you on in a year and you say, oh, guess what, we have 20,000 applicants and we took a thousand of them or 1,500 of them, our enrollment is doubled. Won't that be the answer? I think that we do need to say we're going to be accountable a year from right. now. How are we doing? Let's assess our job performance. Let's right. assess the job performance of the president. But, but Rob, you know, you said it's a tiny, tiny place. It's microscopic. But what it shows is if a governor had appointed uh, six hard leftist liberals to a board of trustees, <laughs> give it a collective yawn. Okay. This is correct happening because six conservatives have been appointed as trustees. And believe me, the media have gone ape over this. The Wall Street Journal, the, the, the Washington Post. I mean, I don't mean just left wing. It is. Across, right. I, I spoke with the New Yorker the, this morning, uh, USA Today. And what it shows is really this is such a big story at the media and it won't seem to settle down is that the left regards the campus as its territory right correct yeah. that's exactly right, right. and it has exactly been. right it has yep. been they, they have they, mm -hmm. that's actually a rational conclusion of them to draw because of course it has been trustees traditionally have been really really rich dudes who kind of write a check and look the other way while uh, marxist professors are given tenure <laughs> and what it shows is well i'm not sure if it's just that the left wants total control and simply finds any conservative presence offensive, right. repulsive, right. or 
do they sense the insecurity of their grip? Well, that's and one little success. Right. That was my next. That was my next mm-hmm. question. Was aren't they really afraid that this damn thing might work? What if it works? So I, I guess I. So you've been down there, and um, I know this has been these early days yet. Uh, but I, I have to ask you about some. Maybe give me, even lie to me because I need to hear some goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I have this experience all the time, and I'm wondering if you do. Which is that you know you're talking to people who are on the left, and they say you know after a glass of wine or when you're in the you know you're by yourself you know I agree with you on a lot of stuff. Have you ever have you felt that way as you guys have stormed the gates that a couple of I don't know I'm I'm assuming a couple of English professors who still teach Chaucer and maybe a history professor who still teaches you know military history have come up to you and said thank God I think that I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people uh, come to me who have been canceled conservative somehow who've been canceled the mob ganged up on them you know fifty to one. <laughs> right Here. there you mean you mean there or just in general uh in general in general uh and and tell me oh you know I, I'm, i've gotten these emails from this colleague from that liberal colleague and they they said they sympathize they think it's awful but they just won't open their mouths i mean the timidity sure and conformity among the professorate is astonishing yeah. especially these are some of the most protected labor classes on earth True. And, mm-hmm. and yet they fear the grim looks of their colleagues uh, as if as it, if it was, you know, the, 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 the NKVD coming to their yeah, door. I guess what I mean to say is that in any one of these schools, my, my, this is my premise, there's a noisy group of left-wing agitators, and then there's a noisy group of left-wing agitator adjacents. And then there's a group in the middle that just, you know, keep your head down, teach calculus. And then there's a group that's a smaller group, maybe that's like, oh, I hate all this. I wish I could go back to teaching, you know, Thucydides. Um, have, have, have you been welcomed by anybody? No. No. <laughs> not, not, on this, not on this. I mean, I've had a few people write to me, but they, they, they're not in that sort of moderate, centrist, liberal regular folks kind of right. group. There are people already who've, who've, who've had their, their tensions. But see, I think, uh, Rob, I have seen three hard leftists steer 27 moderate liberals in any direction they wanted them to go because they usually borrow upon the guilt factors, the right. factors, and, you know, uh, the last thing a liberal wants to be called is racist, right? They are scared to death that term. And the leftists in academia, many of whom are cluster B personalities, they're, they're extremely sophisticated in the arts of manipulation and intimidation. And it works. Again, people do these things because it works. And it has worked for a long time. And when it doesn't work, Say in our case, where you know at the the at the meeting, the last meeting, you had twenty seven public commentary scream at us as as racists mm. and everything else, and it didn't. We don't. We didn't care. It didn't affect <clears throat> our judgment. It does. Your your indignation just doesn't fly with us. Sorry, Mark. From the from the pol- If I may widen the lens just a little bit here, from the immediate politics of what you find yourself in the middle of to your field. I'm going to ask a question that's Rob's question too, although he doesn't know it yet. If you're of our generation, Mark's and Peter's and Rob's and James's, when you went to, to college, you could major in English because you were being instructed. The senior figures in your English department had received their intellectual formation in the 50s and very early 60s before the poison began. And now, after all these decades, uh, it, it, no smart kid would consider, I'm overstating the case, but English, English departments are the sources of some of the worst wokeness. My theory is part of this is the, is the kind of move to stem and away from the humanities 
because the English English professors are not in the business of discovering new knowledge, which is the mantra you hear at campus after campus. They are in the business of conveying appreciation of a patrimony, which is a different business to be in, and one that in general is less appreciated in the move to STEM. All right, correct my analysis if you want to, but the question is this, how does the renewal take place? After decades of this, how does the renewal take place? You know, let me let me say about your characterization. You're absolutely right. English used to give the humanities generally used to give undergraduates a big picture, right? yes, a grand narrative. At UCLA, where I was an undergraduate, there was a three course survey class from Beowulf to W. H. Auden that gave you the full lineage, right? right. Patrimony. Our civilization. I took mm-hmm. that class at Yale. Uh, it, Western civilization was a grand narrative. It was a monumental formation for the young. T.S. Eliot called it the ideal order of monuments. And it was impressive. It made young people realize I'm stepping into the shadow of greatness. And that that there is a coherent world of sublimity and beauty that I can join. The great American novel. This was, you know, the Hawthorne, Melville, through Faulkner, Hemingway, Ralph Ellison. This was, again, a formation, a tradition that could be handed to them as their inheritance. Well, they destroyed it. They got rid of it. The requirements are gone. No big pictures, no grand narratives. And what did they put in the place? Diversity requirements, (laughs) Right. right? Critical thinking, these empty, it's just a random hodgepodge. Education for them is just kind of a, oh, this isn't this little bit interesting? Oh, look at this author. Oh, what wonderful contemporary relevance. What a waste of time. Most of them think, and I'll just say one quick statistic about English. In 1970, one in 12 or 13 bachelor's degrees in America went to an English major. Right. One of the, it was the center of the campus. Now it's below one in 50. Mm. English is just part of the, you know, window dressing of the curriculum. And of course, yeah, the, the STEM and business have been the, uh, I know James got to ask a question. Can I, can I just ask one quick question? I know James got it. What's the tuition at new college? Yeah. I think it's about 10, 10,000. Okay. I know, I know right. it's, it's an amazing. It's kind of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and, and her going to run you 60 grand. Right, exactly. All right, so I'm sorry, James, I cut you off. Go ahead. I, no, I was just building on what you were saying before. No English majors, because to study English literature would be privilege and supremacism and all the rest of it. And it's better to have a, a, a great expansive knowledge of other cultures that have little or no influence on this one. It's like inheriting a house and not teaching them exactly where the silverware is and where the light switch is and where the furnace is. It's madness. I understand it. I get it. I agree. So we got the dumbest generation, as you call them, in 2008 in your book. 2008, a few years later, social media starts to take over the minds of the youth, and we see all of these plummeting rates of happiness, all of this increase in despair, That's and, right. and and the 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 whole psychology, the whole mental health of a generation is turned away from communing with other people in the college quadrangle to staring at the little glass rectangle, even when they're in the same room with themselves. But now they've grown up, and they've grown up without this cultural patrimony being handed to them or instructed to them. What was the result of this when the dumbest generation grew up? Well, how are they, how are they doing? We haven't given them a coherent tradition, a, a meaningful past. We haven't given them any religion. They have no transcendent orientation to them. And we haven't given them a country that they can feel pride in. I mean, people like to feel good about their home. Mm-hmm. You tell them you should feel bad about your homeland. So the result is 32 year olds who are just rootless. They've got no foundations. They have no structure in the universe within which they can structure their lives. We we gave to them a cosmos of just chaos, mm-hmm. randomness. I mean, take the term diversity. Well, diversity for what? What is the purpose? What is the well diversity for diversity? The only thing that they have to belong to is the self. And it's not even a self that's in a boat in a great fleet. It's just an empty little bark bobbing on a big ocean. Um, and with those happy words, uh, we have to let you go. But we thank you so much, Professor Barlin, for coming along. And we will watch keenly what is done at the new college because it's a great story. It's a great little experiment. It and- is a great story. 
And we it wish a you a great story. All the best. And uh, heck, I wish you'd been a professor when I was an English major because uh, I like to I, I like to listen to you, and it's fun. So thanks. Thank you, Mark. I bet you I can still recite the uh, Canterbury Tales. The opening. Very, very perfect, gentle. When that April, with his shoulder suit, suit the, the, the Drocht of March hath pierced to the road. The Drocht of March hath pierced to the road. I would like everybody just to pause, just to pause, and think how the hell I'm going to insert a commercial into this whole thing. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. All right. So we all remember our Chaucer. Does anybody want to go back to that time? No. And I'll tell you why. It was cold. It was cold, and it was dank. And everybody knows you went to bed at night in your little monk cell. You had a scratchy blanket, and that was about it. Unless you're the king. If you're the king, and it's cold, and you're in Chaucerian times, you probably have a nice big comfort quilt to keep you warm. Uh, but most people weren't kings. As a matter of fact, you, however, live in the modern era, in the 21st century, and it's cold now. But unlike the people of ancient times, you can stay cozy all winter long with a set of buttery soft sheets from Bowl and Branch. They're made with 100% organic cotton threads that get softer with every wash. And as I say, week after week, I am here to show you and to demonstrate and to promise you that empirically, that is so. Wash with sheets since last week, they're better than they were the week before. And they were pretty good then, too. Why? How does this happen? How do they do this? Well, Bolin Branch uses the highest quality threads on the planet, on Earth. Their sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. They feel buttery to the touch, and they're super breathable, so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer months. That's why their signature hemmed sheets are a bestseller for a reason, and they're loved by millions. You can How many of these people have been leaving good reviews? Oh, more than 10,000 happy sleepers have written five-star rave reviews. Best of all, though, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. You can't go wrong. You're not going to take them back. I'm just telling you right now, once you take them out and sleep on them for a night, they're not going back. But if for some reason you have to, that's free. Anyway, no, <laughs> they're not going back. What am I kidding? Make the best of bedtime. Make the most of bedtime with bold and branch sheets. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code RICOCHET at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Bowland Branch for sponsoring this the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Andrew Gutman. If you're a Ricochet listener on a regular basis, then you know that Andrew's a familiar name, needs no introduction. But if you haven't been hanging around Ricochet, tisk tisk. Uh, in short, he's the Brearley Dad. Remember that story? Uh, and the host of Take Back Our Schools. And he started the Speak Up for Education Substack newsletter. Welcome back, Andrew. How are things? I'm things. Well, I'm good. I don't know if the situation in education is that good, but thanks very much for. Well, we were just talking about. We were just talking about Florida, I, and you, I heard know. I'm in right. Florida now. Ah, which, which some right. listeners may or may not know. We well, wait a minute. After... Hold on. We got we got two guys who are going to reform education here, and you're both concentrated in Florida. Couldn't you move to California and work some magic out there? We could use some help. Well, wait. So so explain. So why of Florida? Aside from just the weather and all the other stuff. Why yes. Florida? Big aside. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, you know, sorry. Well, that's where everybody from New right. York is going. Um, we we debated. You Wait, know, have we you went... left Manhattan permanently? Uh, sort of. We may go back. Oh wow. We're, we're not sure. Okay, so so we were in Manhattan right. twenty five years. Uh, we left. You know, obviously, we when we left Brearley, um, then we got kicked out of our apartment over mask issues. That's another issue. <laughs> and we de- and we left to New to New Jersey for about a year and put our daughter in a school in New Jersey and then debated almost every right. night. Do we go back to Manhattan or down to Florida? And we wound up going down to Florida, put her in a school here, which probably the only non-woke, secular, strong academic school in the country. And I did an exhaustive search, uh, and it, and uh, but we're not very happy with it academically. So now we're actually going to send our daughter to boarding school in the UK, which is another story, because they're all also going down kind of the woke path. Um, so we are... We are in Florida. There's great things about it. Um, and now we're debating what to do, though, once our daughter is overseas. So we just had. So that's yeah. the long so winded answer. Had, uh, as a guest. No, no, no. You got here, yeah, we just had as a guest Mark uh, Bowerline. Bowerline? That's not Bowerline. Um, and he is now, um, he was a professor at Emory at, uh, Emeritus. And now he is a trustee at the this new experiment, kind of new college. New this college. kind of new thing. New, new college. So it does seem like there's experimentate i mean you know look we, 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 i wish him well plus ben sass at the right. university of florida it does that's seem like there's experimentation deal. taking place in florida that if you were looking to innovate education in a uh, in a yeah. in a 
incredibly diverse, multicultural, cacophonous state, maybe one of the top cacophonous states in the, in the union. Florida is a perfect place to go, right? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a number of things. Obviously, you have, have a lot of the initiatives that DeSantis and company are doing, which I am a, a very big supporter of. Um, and then there's so much activity. There's so much money down here. There's so many people moving down from the Northeast, from California. Um, there's a lot of activity in sort of the K through 12 education world, micro schools, new schools being formed. So, and it's much, much easier to do that. I mean, I, I, I think we talked about this whenever it was a year or two ago, you know, I, I tried to build a school in New York city. I wanted to do that. I desperately wanted to do that. I made some progress talking to philanthropists, talking to prospective teachers and parents. Um, you know, when we decided to leave New York city, that plan went out the window, but to do it in a place like New York city is astronomically expensive to do something in a state like Florida is not easy and not inexpensive, but much, much more doable. So there is a lot of activity here, but, but a lot of it's what DeSantis is doing. This is a measure. I don't, this, it seems to me, this is well worth dwelling on to the extent of about 15 seconds. So I'll take 15 seconds to dwell on it. You were a master of the universe. Now, I know that in your, if you're in Manhattan, you're very aware of the pecking order, and there's always somebody who's 10 times Okay, still, you were working in the financial world in Manhattan. You talked to philanthropists. We know what that means. You talked to really rich people, some of the richest people on the face of the planet. And after all these conversations, you looked at each other. You all looked at each other and said, it's too hard. It's too expensive. Yeah. New York has become impossible for the people who inhabit the very tip-top strata of the entire American economy. It's just staggering. It's just staggering how things... We, we hear again and again about how New York has become unlivable for the poor. The astonishing thing is that it's impossible even for the very richest people to take new ventures. It, to. I wrote a piece on this uh, when we left New York and when we came down to Florida, uh, and I was very critical of everything that's happened to New York in the last couple of years. It is not a place to raise a family from poor to middle class to super billionaire. It just is not the place to raise your family. We said this, and this is why we, we may go back or at least spend part time there. Without a kid, it's not unlivable. With a kid, with what's happened to the school, with the crime and quality of life issues, it's no longer a place to raise a family. And that's really sad because for the last 25 or 30 years, after it got cleaned up, it was a terrific place. Now, yes, it was not an easy place if you didn't have a fair amount of money. But even, you know, it, it even, you know, for public school families, with all the culture there, um, if you could make it work, it was a great place to raise a family. That's no longer the case. And, and I don't, it's, I think it's done. And it's very, very sad. Well, thanks. I still live here. Um, so on, but, you don't, but you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you don't have kids in school. I don't have kids in schools. That's true. It's yeah. Yeah. It's a great place. You want to go out to dinner. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Miami's pretty good. Uh, no I, good Chinese thing. Your podcast, take back our schools. Uh, Ricochet listeners here and can, can hear and subscribe to. So if you're not listening to it, subscribe instantly. Um, could you tell us about the upcoming interview you have with the uh, James Lindsay? Sort of a big deal, right? Yeah, so that should go okay. live, I think, tomorrow. So so for the, uh, some listeners may be familiar with James Lindsay. He's uh, very well-known in sort of the anti-woke space and in the Twitter sphere. He's got a big Twitter following uh, and somewhat controversial. But he is sort of considered the leading authority on the ideological foundations of everything we call woke. Uh, and what we talk about in tomorrow's episode is his thesis, which is one I wholeheartedly agree with, that the fundamental mission of schools has changed. It is no longer, and this is, you know, I think part of what your conversation was with Mark a little while ago. It is no longer about passing down knowledge to the next generation. It is no longer about teaching English and math and history and science. It is now a political education. And this is not just in fancy $60,000 a year, really private schools. This is in almost every school, public and private, in the country, including in most religious schools. The fundamental mission of education has changed to political education, to training progressive activists. So this is what James, who was very knowledgeable about the ideological foundations of this coming out of Marxism and critical theory and critical race theory and queer theory. Um, and he makes that case and, and he makes a very convincing case. And it's one that I agree with.
Could it be that the reason that they've shifted to this is just out of desperation because there are no metrics for these things? If you teach somebody DEI, if you steep them in all of the various identities and the rest of it, there's no real hard and fast test that you can give at the end that tells whether or not they passed. This last week, we heard uh, that Baltimore has, uh, I think it's something like zero students who are, yeah. profi- who are proficient at grade in math. And even those who can put a couple of numbers together are doing so grades and grades below what they do. Uh, and this is being met with usual horror. Uh, it's being blamed on uh, Fox News and Republicans and the rest of it. And simultaneously with this, there was on the web a little viral video about somebody showing off their high school. I think it was in Canton, Ohio which was this absolute palace. And somebody was pointing out, well, here's the reason that the students in Canton are doing well and the students in Baltimore aren't. Look at all the money that they have. But even when you factor out what it costs to build, even if you factor out the taxes and the rest of it, 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 it turns out that they're spending two, three times more money in Baltimore in these cities uh, per student, supposedly, except that it all goes for the administration and the buildings which are falling down and the educators and the DEI staff and all the rest of it, that it's not money. When you mentioned before that New York is expensive, yes, I mean, the infrastructure of putting a school together is going to kill you. But there still is, isn't there, this idea that uh, that if we just bump up the number of dollars that we throw at per student, we will achieve something, as opposed to the fact that we have absolutely broken people coming into the school system because of dysfunctions at home and the culture, uh, matched with people who are no longer interested in teaching them match with people who are incapable of keeping a class even safe and and quiet the answer is to let the money follow the students and let the parents who have the care for their students go to the places that they need to be isn't it we know that are we any closer to making that argument on a national scale and seeing something actually change Okay, you said a lot. Let, let, let me <laughs> answer this in three ways. Let me answer this in three ways. This is the ricochet um, way, as okay. you know. You I've learned this, I've learned this abs- from Peter and Rob. He throws there's absolutely the no bus. correlation. <laughs> He's not wrong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's no correlation between money spent on edu- and educational achievement. We've known that for 50 or 60 years. The, the, um, so start with that. I mean, New York City spends more than two times, maybe close to three times the national average uh, per student in the public school system. Charter schools spend less and do better. Uh, so, you know, that this is about, this is not about the money. Okay, so let, let's say that. Is what is happening in schools, I think this is how you started your question, um, is it really just to kind of, you know, sidestep and distract from the fact that these schools suck and educational achievement is so bad? No, I don't think that's the case. I think this is a deliberate mission change of schools. This is political activism. Uh, this is this is a cultural revolution. This is training our children in a cultural revolution to take down and destroy Western civilization. I feel very strongly. Now, that not everybody is trying to do that. Most of the people in this system, most of the teachers, even, even I'd say the head of school, the really, these are the useful idiots. They don't really understand what they're doing. But that is that is what they're doing. And this is, again, this is what James talks about on, on Take Back Our Schools that, that'll come out tomorrow. Um, so I, then I think the last point, you sort of hinted at sort of the school choice issue. Will school choice be the thing that saves us? Uh, no. I don't think it is. I mean, that's taken a lot of attention, especially in sort of Republican politics, and a lot of the red states are pushing this. You know, in theory, I'm a big proponent of school choice. I do. I mean, we've had the issue, where do we send our kid, you know, to school? And we can afford things that a lot of families can't. But, and I think I heard Chris Rufo say this at one point, that in Arizona, which was the first state to recently pass uh, fund kids, not systems, the most optimistic scenario was that within 10 years, maybe 10% of families would leave the public school system. Look, it's great for that 10% of families. We do need to give them more choice. We do need to give families a way to get out of these woke schools or these badly performing schools or dangerous schools. But this is not going to fix the fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is our children are being indoctrinated in very, very leftist, neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist uh, political activism and, and cultural revolution. That's really what is going on. And that's, I'll end with this, from, you know, from, you know, being in this movement now for two years, we have failed at convincing parents mm-hmm. of this. We we have not successfully articulated to parents how bad it is what their kids are learning in these schools and what is really happening. The The gender issues and trans issues now are starting to obviously get more attention because it is so obvious how bad this is. But the bigger picture 
of the change of mission of schools has not been successfully uh, articulated to parents or to Americans in general. But I think that's what's going on. You used to be you had to wait for them to come home from college to be little leftists who rejected well, all your values. That, now it happens in high school. Can I, let me can I address that if, if, I, if we have time? That, that's exactly right. I, if you look at this from a political standpoint, um, I wrote a piece and I, th- I put it up on Ricochet after the midterm elections. Um, the failure of the red wave, right? Did it really happen? Uh, you know, if you look at the, the aggregate House races, Republicans won the popular vote by a few million votes. Look at young people, 18 to 29, something like Democrat plus 30. In some of the key battleground states for Senate, Democrat plus 40 or 50. That's why the Senate went Democrat. Now, these are kids that got indoctrinated in political activism and and in very leftist ideology, mostly in universities. We are now doing this in kindergarten, sometimes even in pre-K. We are doing this- To be fair, there were some lousy candidates, just to be fair. This is terrifying. You put in good candidates, you win a lot. There's the lousy candidates, you had the abortion issue. But, But if you look at the demographics about how progressive these young people are, and again, we haven't seen- these young people who are now being indoctrinated in schools in K through 12 start voting yet. This is terrifying. It's terrifying for Republicans, obviously, but it is terrifying for the country because we will have, if we don't reverse this very, very quickly, we will have a president AOC or someone like that not too far in the future, not in 24, but at some point, um, if this doesn't change. Andrew Gutman, the podcast is Take Back Our Schools. The uh, Substack newsletter, you can read it in Substack. Sign up for it, please. It's Speak Up for Education. And we look forward to hearing your interview with Mr. Lindsay coming up soon on the Ricochet Audio Network. Thanks for joining us again today, Andrew. And we'll talk to you later down the road. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Andrew, keep your eye out. All I need in Florida is an eighth of an acre <laughs> and uh, it, it hook up to the Great. sewage. Yeah, sell, sell uh, Peter some swamp land. Literally, he's good. You, you got a real estate scam happening right now. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> I used to be a big business back. Used to be a big business selling, yeah, selling people that. those plots down there. I, it's it's the, the history of it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, one guy out of an office could move an awful lot of territory, and a lot of it was legit. And a lot of those places, if you look at them today, they're fascinating because they're fifties and sixties platted out communities, and they've got a certain architectural style to them. One guy in an office did it. But hey, if you're a one guy, one person in an office, or maybe you got a couple of employees, if you own a small to medium sized business that kept employees on the payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The employee retention credit, it's a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee, and now more businesses than ever can qualify. The experts at refundspro.com specialize in cutting through all that red tape because, you know, there's got to be red tape qualifying for a government program. Most of the refunds are over $100,000. Now, even businesses that receive PPP funds may be eligible. There are no fees unless you receive a refund, so there's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses, so don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started right today with a free five-minute questionnaire at RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds, with an S, Pro.com. And we thank Refunds Pro for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Uh, one of the things we talked about in the member feed, of course, it's obligatory, we're Americans, is the Super Bowl. Not the game itself, which I thought was a good game. I enjoyed it. But the commercials. Uh, Rob, you were back. I know, Peter, that you were hanging with notepads to take down all of the, uh, the, the new messages from the culture that you were getting from the ads. What stood out to you? Nothing. I was with old friends, and we skipped the ads, catching up on... Each other's kids, I'm sorry to say. Uh, wow. Over to Rob on that one. Heretical. Um, I, you know, I'm surprised by it. I mean, this is just shows maybe I, I'm thinking about it wrong. I don't have really a, a football brain. But, like, I'm surprised at how high the scoring is. Right? The oh, game, you're talking yeah. about the game I mean, now. Yeah, um, okay. I, mean I, I was just, I, I don't, I don't the commercials, I don't care about. That second amazing thing. I just was surprised. Like, you know, these are the two best teams, best offense, best defense, almost by definition. And you'd think that you'd mm-hmm. win the, Super Bowl by, you know, be three to zero or two to zero or six to zero, or there'd be a field goal block. You know what I mean? You'd think that it'd be much more of a trench warfare. Um, and it was just like, this is like, I don't know how many, you know, it was like 50, 70 points on the scoreboard combined. Um, that's a lot. I, I don't know. Just, that was what struck me and not the commercial. So here you go. It's matter to me, says the man in television. Well, I mean, 
want to watch them. I'm fascinated by the commercials because they tell me what they think I want to be. They think this will appeal to me. They think that I will regard this as normal or interesting or desirable or something like that. I'm fascinated by the lessons that are pumped out of these things. But there's something that was a mainstay in all the commercials this year, which I've noted, which was starting to unnerve me a lot. And once you recognize it, it kind of bugs you. There is a consistent color palette that is working through most of these commercials. When you re- whether you realize it or not, it's a teal. It's a metallic teal, a turqu- a dark turquoisey huh. color that is not natural. <laughs> okay, it's not natural, and not only do you just see it pop up from time to time, but it is inserted intentionally all over the place. Um, and I've been collecting. And where does this where does this fit into the Davos plot to reset the world? Well, that's the I, thing. I mean, the reason, I mean, if you wanted to say the commercials that stood out of my mind that set themselves apart were ones that used primary colors that were separate from this, that really made a difference to stand out by themselves. The rest of them saturated themselves in this hue so that it all became part of this overall general smear of this color. Oh, it's in the Benz commercial. Oh, it's in the Snickers commercial. Oh, it's in the Tums commercial. And I don't know why. It's not Pantone's color of the year. It's not a particularly new color because this teal and orange was being used over and over in movie posters about three years or so ago. It's not an attractive color. It doesn't really make people feel better about anything. As a matter of fact, it's kind of depressing. There was an Amazon commercial about a guy, about a dog that was misbehaving. Okay. And people, oh, the dog, the sweet, oh, it's dog, it's, it's, it's dog. Um, but it starts out with this color in the room because that's what the furniture is. Then it moves to the kitchen. Dad's wearing the color. It's the color of the trivet. It's the color of the cabinet. Moves to a room where that color is pouring through the window, which does not. It's not a color of nature. Nighttime doesn't look like that. And ends with the dad driving the crate, which is that color, home at night. And the light outside in the rain is that color. And I don't know why. The only thing I can think of is this is the color of the eyes of our lizardoid <laughs> subhuman <laughs> um, overlords. Rational. And when they finally come out of their lairs from underground where they have been manipulating society, they will open wide those awful eyes and we will see the color and we'll been trained to worship it. That's the only thing I can possibly think. <clears throat> Rob, Rob, everybody has a podcast now. But only we have James. <laughs> right. Well, but isn't it possible? I mean, I've noticed like when you watch the Super Bowl, everything is hypersaturated. It doesn't even seem real. The game doesn't seem real. Everything's like super right. hypersaturated. The colors are just like everything's right. amped up. Mostly because yes. people tend to watch. Yes. I, mean, I think they're a, they're, I don't know. I'm guessing they're they're compensating for the group nature of the viewing experience that people are in bars and restaurants and together and the screen isn't quite so up in your face big, big but when you watch it in your home tv yes. it really it's like to me it's like it's like it's like weird it's like yeah Garish. it doesn't seem like yeah. these those are real uniforms that's real grass that's a real football it all has this kind of cgi quality but i think that's just something they type into the box but maybe not well, our own uh, NFL TV guy here at Ricochet may be able to tell us whether or not they're boosting the saturation on that. And that's possible. I mean, the, but the show itself, the, telev- the the football game itself pops with a whole variety of colors. There's a, and it's, it's just visually all over the place. And it's interesting and it's eclectic. Even though it's very much stage managed, it's not uniform of a hue. What I'm convinced that they're doing, however, is that they add this color to things that where it isn't in the original product. There was uh, an ad for the uh, new Oppenheimer movie. Which had this all, which had this saturated uh, teal, metallic teal, all over the place. And I'll bet when I go to the movie, it's not there. When I'm looking at the Batman movie, all of a sudden that's Batman's color. All of a sudden that's the color of of his lair, which it ain't. That's black. It's supposed to be black, but it's not. I'm going to go to Ricochet today, and I'm going to post a whole Please, series. I was about to ask you. you I, I want, no, let's yeah, uh, let's, uh, exactly let's let everybody see this. Yes, because James, you are now in because territory been, where been, you have to prove you're not crazy. I know you have to prove have been, it to I, us now. I have. I started out about three or four weeks ago with my buddies when we were watching football, pointing it out to them, and now they see it and they start to move around in their seat and say, "My God, you're right. It is everywhere. It's every." You know. So yes, I will post. Tell that. us just describe mm-hmm. the hue one more time. The color we're looking for. It's a a dark teal turquoisey metallic sort of sick. It's there's something unnatural about it. It's a it's a blue that's lost its We're in Tom Wolf territory now. It's a cyber blue. It's a blue that it's 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 artificial intelligence's idea of the sky. Let's put it that way. 
That's what it is. Uh, anyway, anything else, gentlemen? Um, or are we done? I think we're done. Hey, no, no, we're he not says, done. He says, I know you're not Catholic. I, we, I think we have to be done because uh, the we're about to hear a vacuum. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you, you, I know you're not Catholic, James, but I'm afraid you do have to go to confession. I'm slow on the uptake, but it just tweaked with me that you used a visit to the Vatican and the invigoration one feels from visiting these great treasures of Western civilization mm -hmm. as a segue. Mm -hmm. You used it as a segue. I mm -hmm. I'm just staggered by this. All right, now I'm by, by the inappropriateness of it, of, of the, the audacity that too, of, that too, of, of yes. marrying audacity, the two. inappropriateness. Keep going. Um, I'll let yes. you know when you use an adjective to which I object. <laughs> I tone completely. I was just, I was struck by Rob's conversation about the barrenness of these places, and not barren in the empty sense, but but, but just un, unadorned. And my mind was casting back to the churches and the things like that. And then I saw what ad came next, and I thought, well, we'll go there. And I didn't realize that Peter Robinson was taking notes about this and would later, uh, you know, have Going to straight bring, to the bishop bring me to take me straight. <laughs> well, I stand accused, and uh, um, I'm sorry for that. I don't know if there's anything else I should apologize for other than uh, begging you to go to Apple Podcasts again and give us five stars. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that. I say it every week. You don't do it. You're the one at fault. So there, go do it. And I'll stop <laughs> complaining. should also note that Youth Switch, the ad to which Peter was referring, is one of our sponsors. Bolin Branch as well and Refunds Pro. Great companies that have helped us through this week, and why not make your life better by going and seeing what they have to offer for you, too? Uh, there are ricochet meetups to come, and uh, we're going to tell you about those on the site so you can see whether or not they're actual human beings from Ricochet convening in an area near you. Meet them. They're, don't be afraid. They don't bite. They're lots of fun. And that pretty much does it. Great podcast. Good to be back with both of you at the same time, and we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet for now, 4.0, 5.0.com. Next week, fellas. Next week, boys. Ricochet. Join the conversation.